0: The point with Trump is he's in on the joke. So said South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham about his odd relationship with the 45th president as quoted by veteran journalist Mark Leibovich in his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. The idea that Trump's entire chaotic rollercoaster presidency was a giant joke and his army of Republican enablers were in on it all along is a continuing theme of Leibovich's book as he charted how, one after another, top Republicans who privately had utter contempt for the occupant of the Oval Office nevertheless fell loyally in line, concluding that it was all some harmless charade that Trump himself was fully a part of. But what happens when the joke including absurd claims about the results of a presidential election, leads to violence, threatening the lives of even Trump's own vice president. As the January 6th committee plans to wrap up its summer hearings with a primetime special Thursday night, we'll talk to Leibovitch about his book and what happens when the big Washington jokes stop being funny on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear... That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help, so, help so help me God. So help me
1: God. So help me God. So help me God. So
0: help me God. So help me God. I'm Michael Isikoff,
2: Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor in Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a senior counsel at States United. So this Leibovitch
0: book is kind of a a really cool companion to the Tim Miller book we discussed on the pod a couple of weeks ago. Both Miller and Leibovich sort of expose and lampoon all the uh, enablers around Donald Trump. Uh, But they're actually approaching this, and they're both, I should say, very funny reads, uh, well worth our listeners taking a look at. But there is a difference here, where Miller was sort of focused on his contemporaries as Republican consultants, campaign ops, oppo guys, the kind of, you know, sort of second and third tier levels of Trump world. Leibovitch is really looking at, you know, the big fish who were there at Trump's side all along, Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, and on the list goes, all of whom You know, these guys, Reince Priebus is another one who figures prominently, all of whom knew what a joke, as it were, Donald Trump was, but still sacrificed every ounce of their integrity and self-pride to be complete sycophants to the guy.
1: Yeah, it's also a sequel and a much darker sequel to his book, This Town, which is this kind of satirical take on Washington political culture. But in a way, it's almost as if the enablers of Trump thought that they were still playing by the the rules of this town. In other words, The sort of um, careerism, uh, vanity, you know, the hunger for power, you know, all of those things justified kind of staying in on on the joke. And what they didn't see, what they should have seen, was that the seeds of something much, much darker and more dangerous were being planted. And so, you know, Lindsey Graham is kind of laughing all about this because he's in on the joke. And then toward the end of the book, there's this... um, You know, one of many haunting scenes, this is on January 6th in the Capitol, and there's a Republican member, backbencher, literally lying on the ground, you know, in great kind of distress. And he's saying that he's going to vote, he's saying that he would vote for Joe Biden to certify the election for Joe Biden. That's what he wants to do. That's what he knows he should do. But he can't do that. He can't do it because he doesn't want to
2: endanger
1: the lives of his family. And that's where things ended up.
2: That's yeah. pretty scary. I mean, it's a book that is an incredible read. It's, it's full of incredible anecdotes in terms of phrases and a kind of a, a wit about the characters that can't hide the really dark issues and the, the, the kind of the turn of the Republican Party and many of the characters in it to a real nihilism, a real kind of hollow core where the kind of the careerism and the power are kind of all and there's no there's no exit. There's no exit for these people. Except, of course, for a few of them where the exit is actually greater power as one of its main characters, Kevin McCarthy, is, you know, on track to potentially be the next speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives.
1: And a few others whose exit is probably a permanent exit from politics or at least from the Republican Party, like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger.
2: And a few others whose exit is... To a federal prison.
0: Yes, right. (laughs) Well, speaking of which, um, we are taping this on the eve of uh, the Thursday night grand finale for at least the summer hearings of the January 6th committee. And, um, you know, the one big question that, you know, has hung over this from the start is, you know, are they presenting evidence that the Merrick Garland Justice Department will have? to move on and ultimately lead to indictments of, you know, potentially of Donald Trump himself. And we've been talking about this for weeks on the pod. And clearly a lot of details have come out that strengthen the case. But I'm still not clear in my own mind whether they've pushed it over the goal line. And with this last hearing, which we're awaiting for uh, Thursday night, about Trump's inaction, when the Capitol is being ransacked, can they do it? Victoria, you're the lawyer here. I mean, does inaction, dereliction of duty, can that be an element in a uh, felony indictment of Donald Trump?
2: You know, I honestly don't know because I haven't, we haven't had the hearing yet, so I eagerly—I eagerly right. await eagerly seeing whatever. But as what...
0: bad as as we are all expecting it to be, he was warned. He knew what was going on. He was watching it on TV. He was told. You know, people were shouting, "Hang Mike Pence," and he didn't lift a finger to do anything.
2: So this later evidence, this hundred and eight—I think it's one hundred and eighty-seven minutes of evidence—is not the. Evidence that is necessary to prove the elements of the crime, which are, you know, kind of intent and action to actually unleash this crowd upon Congress and to, uh, you know, to break, you know, provisions of the federal code that bars interfering with federal officers doing their their job. Right. Which is counting the votes. But what it does do is it It kind of bolsters or reinforces the previous evidence that they've demonstrated, which is that he had an intent to do it, that he actually did do it. And then once it started, the fact that he stayed silent, simply kind of, as I say, reinforces or or kind of shows that he was doubling down on what he had already done. So I guess what I'm saying is this is not the slam dunk evidence that they need. They already showed that with the Cassidy Hutchison testimony.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is is that, uh, you know, these, what we're going to hear Thursday night are the kind of atmospherics and the and the narrative that is very important not to necessarily make the decision as to whether they can indict. But if they do and bring charges against Trump, that's the kind of information uh, that is key to actually persuade a jury to convict. And so we'll see. But you know what I haven't seen yet, because presumably this is all happening secretly, um, the grand jury process, is what the Justice Department has and what they're doing beyond what we've seen in the January 6th um, hearings. Uh, Presumably, With all of the authority that the federal government and the Justice Department has and their subpoena power, they will be able to add to what we've seen in these hearings so long as there is stuff to add. (laughs) But we just don't know. And one question I have, and this is far down the road, is are they going to subpoena Donald Trump? Are they going to try to put him before the grand jury? We we know because, Mike, you and I broke this story last week that— Fonnie Willis, the district attorney down in in Fulton County, is seriously considering doing that herself for uh, his involvement in trying to overturn the election in Georgia. It has to be something that they are talking about inside the Justice Department.
0: So it is clear. I'm glad you brought up um, our Fonnie Willis reporting because things have definitely heated up down there in Atlanta. We were just down there last week. We know Back to the Justice Department for a moment—that they were investigating the fake elector scheme, the, the, all those in all those state capitals on December 14th, when these Trump electors got together, met in secret behind closed doors, and anointed themselves the bona fide electors from their respective states, despite the fact that Joe Biden had won the states, won the um, vote in those counts. So. DOJ has subpoenaed those electors, but Willis is ahead of them. She's not only subpoenaed them, she sent them target letters. We reported last week that Burt Jones, who is the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor in Georgia, has gotten a target letter. Uh, He was one of the 16 fake electors in Georgia. David Schaefer, who organized the meeting, who's the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, has gotten a a, a target letter. But in a court filing that Willis just made in the last day or so, she has sent target letters to all 16 of those electors. So she's pretty damn serious about this. She's moving aggressively. And a lot of people think, including, I think, the two of us, that whatever the Justice Department does, funny Willis is going to beat him to it.
1: All eyes are on Georgia, and all eyes are on Fonnie Willis. Yes. <laughs>
2: and also, by the way, don't lose sight of the fact that there are open investigations against fake electors in at least two other states, Michigan and Wisconsin, where their attorneys general have indicated that they're investigating whether or not the fake electors in those states also broke are the law. Are those criminal
0: probes? Can they uh, do they have criminal jurisdiction? Um, they do. In they the do have they,
2: in much the same way as yeah. Uh, so that's a uh, you know the January sixth committee has had a galvanizing effect on more than just the Department of Justice. And so, you know, and uh, the other thing we haven't mentioned, of course, is that Steve Bannon is on trial right now, even as as we speak. speak. Yes. Um, And there's a, you know, it's the, the trial is going fast. Bannon has very few defenses, and there's a, like a, a distinct chance that within the next week, Steve Bannon is going to uh, hear a jury verdict on whether or not he committed criminal contempt of Congress.
0: And look, the sentence for criminal contempt is can be anywhere from 30 days in jail to up to a year in jail. Bannon's facing two counts. Had he pled, he probably could have Gotten off with uh, you know the thirty day penalty uh, or or something pretty small. The fact that he's gone to trial is something that is definitely going to increase his exposure for lengthier prison time.
1: Well, at the end of the day, it, it, I mean, at this point, what does the January sixth committee want? What is a prosecution? Obviously, it has it'll, it'll have some real deterrent effect going forward. But look, we we kind of past that. You go that to prison, now. right? Yeah. You, before this, the sense was you could defy Congress with impunity. The idea that you were going to actually be put behind bars did not seem right. realistic. Now it seems real. That is no, going the, to The only point I was making
0: is that the committee's investigation has probably moved past Bannon at this point. They're not, you know,
1: they may. Well, that was what I was going to say. They may not even want to have. You know, steve bannon before their committee because you know they know he is essentially a propagandist and a master at you know kind of bluster so the, mo- the more value here is what I was saying before is the deterrent value going forward, as opposed to the value of his uh, of his testimony.
2: Meanwhile, the other, of course, big story is the secret Serv- the the missing Secret Service texts, and it's really fascinating to see how or if the committee is going to end up with those. With kind of increasing evidence emerging that kind of is suggesting that maybe the Secret Service destroyed evidence about January fifth and. January 6th. That is a story that is going to be unfolding over the course of the next few months and a very uncomfortable story for the Secret Service. It is
1: suspicious. Now, we haven't seen, you know, we don't know what those texts were. So there's no actual evidence yet. But it does raise the very eerie possibility that, you know, the Secret Service was acting in essence as a, a, you know, an an arm of, of this, you know, conspiracy.
0: But just to be clear, the Secret Service has said this was part of some previously scheduled replacement move for phones, and uh, it, it was unrelated to the actual request from the committee for these text messages. It seems to me there's got to be a paper trail on this, right? I mean, this shouldn't be so Do you so normally hard. print out your texts? <laughs> no, no, no. But in terms of the scheduling of that replacement for the phones for, of the Secret Service agents, somebody ordered that. There had to have been back and forth about, you know, when are we going to do this? You know, what happened? And given the requirements of federal law to preserve all federal records, somebody had to have, you know, taken note of that and addressed how that was going to be handled, how these text messages would have been preserved. I mean, I presume they have a legal staff at the Secret Service whose job it is to look at these things. Anyway, clearly more to learn on that front. But we've got a uh, great guest to discuss, Trump-era Washington, Mark Leibovich of The Atlantic Magazine. So let's get to it. All right, we've now got with us Mark Leibovich, author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, welcome to Skull Thanks
3: for having me, guys. I'm um, sorry for the weird setup. We're we're we're, we're makeshift hotel setup. I would like to set this okay.
0: You're yeah. you're a busy guy in much demand these days, uh, so we'll think we'll yes. take what we can get. So look, Mark, you wrote this wildly successful bestseller This Town a number of years ago that satirized the culture of Washington. And you kind of make an allusion to this in your new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, that it's almost as though what you were satirizing a number of years ago is kind of quaint. It's almost like an English comedy of matters compared to the incredible vicissitudes of the Trump presidency. When did Washington start start to change, was it all because of Donald Trump or were there changes afoot that led to Donald Trump?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. It's sort of a foundational question about, you know, what I've been doing here and sort of the struggles I had, because as you alluded to, I mean, that this is not a comedy of manners. I mean, to sort of do like the gentle tweak pox on both your houses, you know, oh, let's make fun of the culture of Washington thing, which is what I did nine years ago, essentially would be just to miss the moment. I mean, it, this the this the thing about the Trump years is there's obviously a frivolous take you could put on Washington from like the old times, but there's nothing frivolous about this. I mean, this stuff is for keeps, and I'm not one of these people who thinks that it's overheated or overstated to say, you know, our democracy is really at stake. You know, with civil war, I mean, people don't laugh at you when you talk about civil war anymore, you know? I mean, this is like... I, but I do think a lot of the same kind of feckless self-perpetuating and opportunistic kind of behaviors that that were rampant and have been rampant for decades in Washington prevail now, but the stakes are so much higher. I I think the threat is so much bigger. And when you have like, you know, Lindsey Graham and Kevin McCarthy, who are two like recurring characters in, in Thank You For Your Servitude, were, you know, minor figures of this town back 10 years ago. I mean, they've been around forever. They like play the game. They like to be at the dice table, as Lindsey said, right? But now when they sort of suck up and sort of sell their souls in the service to this guy, when they're supposedly a checks and balance, when a party is supposedly, you know, supposedly should just check, you know, come in and, and like, you know, keep an eye on their guy. These are much more uh, serious times. And if I were to write a book that had the same basic feel of this town, it would have been a major miss at the moment. It would have been embarrassing. So, you know, I think I think these are much more serious times.
0: You talk about how serious this has become and threats to democracy at all. But a continuing theme in the book is it was all a joke, or at least that's how many of the players you're writing about viewed it. The point with Trump is he's in on the joke, Lindsey Graham tells you. What was the joke?
3: That's sort of an old Washington expression. The joke sort of changes, right? When I wrote the other book, when I wrote this down, the joke was always, look, we're all kind of in business together. We're all part of the same deal. We might be Democrats and Republicans in Congress now, but we all know that we're gonna be making money when we're lobbying together when we get out of here. But we don't say that on the record. It's an unspoken joke, obviously. The punchline only gets uttered in, in private. When people said, you gotta get the joke with Trump, what it referred to is a few layers. In the Republican party, the joke was usually, everyone knew pretty much in private or would acknowledge pretty much in private that this guy is a joke. He is not a serious person. He is not fit to be president. And at worst, he is you know, criminally dangerous to the country. We don't like him, but to say that publicly would be very detrimental to our careers, it would open us up to threats. It would open us up to all kinds of abuse from the president, tweets, and what have you. And so obviously, we don't speak it in public. But in private, we all know it. So the question is why are you not just speaking the truth to the American public who you supposedly work for? You know, I think it's a combination of fear and fecklessness and opportunism and, and just naked self perpetuation. Um, not wanting to offend the base, not wanting to offend their own voters, not wanting to offend the president. So yeah, I mean, look, you guys have been around long enough. You, you know people talk differently in different audiences. I've just never seen it be this extreme.
1: Well, I actually wanted to pick up on this uh, theme of you know sort of the fr- frivolity, you know when you wrote this town uh, versus the Trump administration because what what I thought about when you were talking is that early in the Trump administration, I think, We were, we in the media were all in a sense in on the joke as well. And the anecdote that you write about that made me think that is the whole Sean Spicer crowd sides episode. Because it seemed to me we were all joking about that. We thought that was hilarious in some sense. But there were seeds of something much more dangerous and scarier. In that episode, which so talk comes about to that. fruition
0: on January 6th, there's almost perfect symmetry between that initial crowd size joke and the very deadly serious crowd size joke on January 6th. Right. Go ahead, Mark.
3: And, yeah. And by the way, but to this day, uh, Trump is still bitching about how the media didn't focus on the size of his crowd on January 6th too. Because, you know, I am the prize. So I'm sorry, that was a
1: question for you. I wanted you to actually <laughs> engage on the Sean Spicer.
3: No, it's 100 it's percent true. It was like a ridiculous story. There's no question about it. Spicer, you know, whatever shred of credibility he had, he just like punted into the Potomac River on day one. But yeah, it's like there, there's a great line from Ann Applebaum, who's my colleague at the Atlantic, who has studied authoritarian behavior and one of like the sort of central sort of playbook items from an author is to just take a blatant lie, provably false statement, and just throw it down everyone's throat to to sort of flex to sort of show that you have the power to you know create your own truth. or, as Kellyanne Conway said literally a day later on Meet the Press, to create alternative facts. And she said that in response to, to- Correct. The yeah.
1: uproar over you Sean did. Spicer's remarks. Yeah,
3: Spicer's yeah. thing was on Saturday. Well, Spicer threw. Well, Trump threw his hissy fit over the crowd coverage on Saturday morning. Called Reince Priebus, Kellyanne Conway, and Sean Spicer into the Oval Office. You know, just blows up at them, blames them for the crowd size, the media coverage of the crowd size, and so basically. Trump had this delusion in his head that the, his crowd size was bigger than Obama's. So it then became Sp- Sean Spicer's job to try to prove the delusion in Donald Trump's head was obvious, where it was was true. And then the next day, Kellyanne Conway was asked about it on Meet the Press by Chuck Todd, who said, well, he was giving you alternative facts.
0: From alternative facts to alternative electors.
3: Absolutely. No, there is like, there are a lot of parallels here. Right. And again, we're just sitting here and and it still brings a weird smile to our faces because it's absurd and it's insulting and it's infuriating, but it's also really evil on some levels.
2: There's also no exit strategy from this lie. So, have, having already, you know, kind of swallowed the lie about the crowd size or about the presence of the fake electors, there's no credible exit either. If you try to exit and you basically are admitting you're criminally liable, or you try to exit and you admit that you've been just lying the entire time, yet your book does go into. A few characters in the Republican Party who have exited, who have managed to kind of get out of the the nihilistic Georgia. Trump trap and the vortex, if you will, uh, the Trump tornado. Liz Cheney's one of them. Adam Kinzinger's is another one. And we're pretty familiar with him now. How did they manage to get out? What did they do?
3: You know, I mean, I think that's an important point. I mean, first of all, there is an exit strategy to this. And that is just people, Republicans. I mean, not just two of them, not just, you know, a little handful here and there, but in mass doing honorable work, telling the truth. I mean, again, sounds really simple, but the only way Trump gets away with this is with the complete complicity of the Republican Party. I think Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger have been nothing but, you know, I would say even heroic. I mean, I think, you know, they, they're basically probably going to both lose their jobs over this. They, They've lost all their friends. I mean, their futures in the party are probably done. And they've said so there's a great toll to them, sacrifice. But at the same time, I've talked to them a fair amount. And I've also talked to the people who continue to enable, the Kevin McCarthy's, the Grams. And there's always sort of a baseline misery to the McCarthy's and the Grams because they all know that Liz Cheney's right. They all know that Adam Kinzinger's right. They all know that Mitt Romney is, is right. They would like to be that person, I think, on some level. Now, I don't want to impose too much psychoanalysis or give them too much credit, but I think that it just takes character to, I mean, it's, it, 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 ta- it takes character to like punch a bully in the face or to just like not go along. And it's amazing to me. I mean, the go along behavior, the opportunism behavior has always been, like I said, endemic to Washington, but it's never been this lonely and, and the stakes have never been this high. And the, and, you know, I think Liz Cheney, I think Mitt Romney, I think John McCain, these are all people who have antecedents in the business. They're all they all come from Republican families, you know, for, you know, for various reasons. I mean, they they're their parents, fathers in their all cases. They, they're people of principle. You could hate J- Dick Cheney up and down. And a lot of people do. And, and you can accuse him of all kinds of things. You know, he, he didn't care about not being popular in the Republican Party. He didn't care about being Darth Vader. I think so it helps to have like a historical lineage. I think, you know, a lot of them are people of faith, like Romney and Jeff Flake and some of them are military veterans like Kinsinger and, you know, McCain and a few others. So, I mean, there are some patterns that, that come up and, you know, and then a lot of them are just like twits, you know, like McCarthy. <laughs> it's just like it's not they're kind of like, plot. you know, you can sort of Play-Doh them into submission as Trump did.
2: There's also a new class of characters in Washington that you reveal who you, you don't get to spend a lot of time with them, but it's probably the most frightening class of people that I read about. And they are the people who are frightened, who are actually intimidated. That's is that is that new? It's, you know, what's what's going on?
3: It is new. That's a great point, because I actually was similarly freaked out, not freaked out, but but I thought it was the scariest. I mean. Look, there are dozens of people, Republicans, sort of backbencher Republicans who, you know, would have voted for Joe Biden's certification because it's what everyone does always, you know, a few exceptions here and there. But no, if unless there's like overwhelming proof to the contrary, which there of course wasn't, you vote to certify the election because it's already been certified. It's gone through court challenges. It's been, you know, they're just, you're just here for a count, right? And they all said after, you know, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Trump himself were saying, all right, don't vote for certification. They all started saying to themselves and to their colleagues quietly, look, I can't put my family at risk. I'm getting all these threats. I'm not used to this. I'm used to just sort of being like a head down, anonymous backbencher kind of member. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I don't want to put my family's life in danger. I, I can't do that. And and I guess you can understand that. But, I mean, you don't have to like it. I mean, that's not what you sign up for, but whatever. Yeah.
1: Mark, you got that haunting story of who was it? Was It, it was Peter Meyer.
3: Yes. Uh, the Michigan.
1: young Republican from Michigan, yeah. I think, from Jerry Ford's uh, district, who has an encounter on January 6th with another member who's like literally, I think, on the floor Yep. And incredibly uh, distressed. And w- yes. w- w- tell us about that exchange, because it yeah. goes right
3: to that point. It goes right to that point. Well, first of all, there were a few of those. Exchange- I mean, Tim Alberta uh, at The Atlantic wrote a great piece on Meyer and like their sort of thing he went through. Meyer was one of the 10 impeachment voters. I think he was a freshman. I think, I think this is his first term. Kind of like you're kind of middle of the road conservative, very young. I think he's one of the younger members of Congress, kind of wide eyed. Um, and so he took this vote and, and his friends, a couple of his friends were just so distraught. Yeah. And yeah, and so Tim Alberta did a great piece on sort of how he, kind of came to sort of see how scary this all was. But ultimately, there were a lot of stories like this. Liz Cheney got a lot of them from her colleagues. Kendrick got a lot of them from his colleagues. And and you know, it's important to point out. I mean, this is the dictionary definition of authoritarianism. It's you know, it's persuasion by intimidation. It's you know, you're not debating. You're not. There's not a political advantage here. It's just like, okay, you want your family to be safe, take this vote. I mean. Boom. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, authoritarian, you know, thuggish behavior. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty rampant. I think if it were a private ballot or if it was a secret ballot, you know, maybe there's like five votes for against certification. Maybe. I don't know.
2: Hmm.
0: So, you open the book with this, you know, delicious scene setting at the Trump Hotel, which you Return to time and time again. And it was such a, uh, I mean, I spent a little time there, Kleidman did as well. Um, we got a sense of what it was like, but you really bring it to life. Tell us about the scene at the Trump Hotel. And just sort of one point about that is, you know, Trump gets elected. Uh, you know, that he's going to drain the swamp. And yeah. it's as though he created this swamp with the a, a new swamp, yeah. <laughs> even more corrupt than the old one at yeah. the Trump Hotel.
3: Yeah, he, he perfected the swamp. I mean, the Trump Hotel is this, I mean, I, you know, beautiful space. It's a really nice hotel. It's like the old post office building. It's a historic landmark on Pennsylvania Avenue, about halfway between the, the White House and the Capitol for, you know, If you know, you know, Washington, it's a really prime location, but it was essentially the Republican capital of Washington for four years. And every night or many nights, at least until COVID, you could go in there and there'd be swarms of Republican congressmen and women. Uh, There'd be White House officials, there'd be foreign lobbyists, there would be you know, the cabinet member like Steve Mnuchin and his wife with a little purse dog. They, they had a big suite there. Rudy had a place there. So there were just a lot of staples, like a lot of, you know, people there all the time. And yeah, I mean, like these Republicans would like spend tens, if th- not hundreds of thousands of dollars from their committees, from their campaign funds to do fundraisers there, to do like private strategy breakfasts there. And, you yeah, know, the president would see this bottom line. I mean, it's like it's payola like 101, right? It's like, you want to, okay, you want to please the owner. I mean, there's something a little shady about that if it's a big, powerful figure. But this is the president, and the president's keeping score. I mean, it's just so bizarre. It's like Banana Republic. So you go in there, though, it's quite a scene. It's like Rick's American Cafe. It's like, oh, my God, gambling's going on here, right? And, you know, for reportorial reasons, you could get a lot of work done because, you know, first of all, it's kind of like it was a group therapy session. A lot of these White House people were just miserable all day, and they'd show up and they'd drink a lot, and they were pretty unshy at times about what how absurd their situations were. Always a ton of reporters. I ran into the same people a lot, and you know, you'd sort of hang out in packs. You could see people just sort of wanting in and out. But you know, the, the great pièce de résistance of this experience was seeing Trump himself come in, and you know, he came in. I think at least about 30, 40 times to the hotel for dinner. He, he agreed to eat only at one establishment outside of the white house during his time in Washington. And that was the steakhouse at the Trump hotel, the BLT. And he, you know, like Obama used to, they used to do these, you know, date nights, right. Where they'd sneak out and they'd go discreetly into the kitchen of some new Georgetown bistro and, you know, greet the staff and hope no one noticed them. You know, Trump had one place he needed the applause and you know people like standing up on their chairs applauding you know the maga tourist people like they came all the way To Disney World, and they didn't expect to see Cinderella, so they figured they'd check out the castle, and then Cinderella walks in, right?
0: I was going to say, since you're in LA, you ought to sell your book as a new version of Grand Hotel, Hmm. um, because it it could make uh, you know the characters. One you didn't mention, but you do mention in the book, is Rudy's sidekick in his Ukraine adventures, Lev Parnas, who I think is quoted as saying he saw he spent many trips to Washington, never saw the the monument spent all his time in the Trump Hotel. The Trump of course, he's hotel. since been convicted of multiple yeah. He has felonies. <laughs> yeah, as a new hotel. So, so hotel fed.
1: Let, let me yeah. ask you this question. I mentioned so the the book is about the enablers of Trump, as opposed to you know trumps people who who voted for trump you know the 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 but i, I want to ask you and i'm going to get back to the trump hotel in a second i want to ask you what did you learn in reporting this book and in the reporting you've done more generally about what trump's appeal really was for you know for for all of those people who voted for the, the enablers couldn't have done what they did without trump's control of yeah. that base right and yeah. so i guess the question that I want to ask is you know we all talked about these people who you know were left behind that you know it was NAFTA it was trade deals you
3: know economic anxiety
1: economic yeah. anxiety you know everybody did their interviews you know at uh, at, at the diners in Ohio yeah. mm-hmm. um, did we kind of fall prey to a kind of Washington New York a seller corridor a group think here and the question how this relates to the Trump hotel is I guess in a way your, your book implicitly asks a haunting question for me, which is, why did they ransack the Capitol as opposed to ransacking the Trump Hotel?
3: (laughs) Well, you know, Trump would never stand for the ransacking of the Trump Hotel. I mean, they should have. I mean, I I think there are a couple of great undertold stories here, um, you know, relating to the base. And one, uh, I don't think people pay enough attention to the utter contempt that Trump has for his most loyal supporters. I mean, yeah, sure. Mike Pence, I mean, start with that. But like all the way down, I mean, I always thought it was kind of interesting that he didn't pardon any of the January 6th rioters. Okay. So I, I, I remember remember watching his speech and uh, this didn't get a lot of attention. I mean, the January 6th speech and it didn't get a lot of attention then. It's gotten a little attention now and you know, you'll see why. So he says, um, you know, we're going to march down to the Capitol and I'll be right there with you and we're gonna take our country back, whatever he said after that. And, you know, uh, I thought it was okay, classic Trump lie, you know, just people don't, don't even, you know, you just sort of step right over it, don't even really pay attention. And now he's saying he really wanted to go to the capitol and I, I guess i believe him although it's unclear what he would have done if he had gotten to the capitol like what have you put on like a general <laughs> uniform and started leading the charge or something it's just it's weird it never made sense anyway see, he does go back to the white house safest place in washington certainly safer than the capitol watches this on tv does nothing and it struck me and i wrote about this in the book as a classic trump move okay it's a lie And then he just does nothing. And then his biggest supporters, who he is just moved by, just watching them on TV and so moved by their devotion, you know, they're all rounded up like within the next few days, like hundreds of them. Like they're arrested, their life, their already chaotic lives in many cases are thrown into even greater disarray. They now have legal problems. A lot of them had financial problems to begin with. He didn't pardon any of them. I mean, again, it would be wrong for him to pardon anyone, just like it's wrong to part. You know, you just shouldn't be frivolous with your pardons, theoretically, as you guys know. But you know, he, he spent like basically his last two weeks in office pardoning, you know, Jared's father, and pardoning, you know, all of his big donors, and pardoning what's this guy's name from here? He pardon Bannon, he. didn't he? Pardon, yeah, you know, Bannon and Flynn. I mean, just like he just went down the list. I mean, you know, to go along with like Dinesh D'Souza and. Sheriff Arpaio and, you know, Joe Arpaio and I mean, just, you know, everyone, it's just, I mean, it's, the, it was the swampiest thing ever. But, you know, again, these poor I mean, the, the, the foot soldiers, the people who got arrested, the people whose lives are like turned upside down, you know, he couldn't be bothered to like, pardon them. And again, it's good that he didn't, but it's just, I always thought it, it showed his like naked priorities there.
0: As we speak, we await uh, Thursday night's primetime January 6th hearing about what Trump was doing during that fateful afternoon when the Capitol was being ransacked. What is your sense? Are, Are these hearings breaking through in any way, both with the Trump base, but also with all these Republicans who you have, you know, rightly derided for their servitude?
3: Yeah, I think more so, more than I expected. I'll say that. I I had pretty low expectations just because, you know, you become very hardened to, um, oh, this will break through or the fever will break. And uh, we've just sort of all seen that before, right? So I think it's been great. I think it's been really well done. I've appreciated the lack of speechifying. I've appreciated that it's pretty, they seem to be very shrewd about what they're showing, who they're bringing up. So yeah, I, I hope they go on for a while. I think they're compelling TV. They seem to be getting a, a kind of um, increasingly higher caliber you know, witness up there. I mean, uh, but I've also been inspired really by the sort of simple patriotic truth telling and bravery by these anonymous White House figures and election officials and, and so forth, which, you know, I think only adds to the shame of the people who all do know better, who just keep running and hiding. I mean, you, you haven't heard word one from any of these, like you know, from McCarthy or, or or McConnell or any of these folks or Rubio. I mean, they just they just run in the other direction. It's like it's not happening. And you know, the more this goes on and the more compelling it is, the harder it is to ignore if you're them.
2: One of the things I've been curious about is whether or not Trump January 6th and the, the, the aftermath has kind of rewired the characters of Washington, D.C. If you were, I mean, would you, would you be able to write a This Town about the Biden hangers on? You write about everyone being in on the joke Yeah. in this town. Everyone was in on the joke at the beginning of the Trump administration. Is there any joke? Is there Are there any jokes left?
3: Yeah, I think it's... It would be a great thing for somebody else to write. (laughs) I mean, I really, I I mean, look, I, I, um, yeah, I I mean, look, I I think Biden's a much more ethical, it's like a much, seems like a much cleaner administration, obviously it's not a very high bar. Um, And look, Joe Biden He didn't even bother to promise to drain the swamp. I mean, Obama basically was trying to drain the swamp. I mean, it's kind of I I think look there's a lot of annoying politics behavior in the Biden administration. It's like the donors are all bitching because they're not getting their access. And, um, you know, everyone wants the president's ear and. You know, I I assume like a lot of donors are getting ambassadorships and stuff. I mean, a lot of the same old, but
2: the lobbyists are belly up to the trough right now. You know,
3: all these new bills. No, it's all true. It's all an outrage. And, you know, I I do think that that it feels more misdemeanor ish now in light of the felonies that were taking place. Yeah. So
1: here's a, a different version of that question. Mark is and this is something we've been asking for years now is. Trump the disease or is Trump a symptom of the disease? In other words, you know, has the ground been tilled and fertilized uh, so that someone like Trump, maybe not exactly like Trump, but may come along and, and do the same kinds of things? Or do you think if Trump decides not to run or whatever, something else happens, that the fever is broken?
3: Yeah, I I don't think the fever's broken. I mean, I think the seed corn has been planted. I think you know everyone's like, oh, people are ready to move on, and like DeSantis is like now the alternative. And you know, I don't see that. That guy's like a, a version of Trump. I mean, he's obviously different. I mean, his people say, oh, he's Trump with a brain, but uh, you know, he also is Trump without the you know charismatic appeal to the base. It would it would seem. I, I mean, I don't. People who know him think he's pretty weird. Doesn't like he's just not a. People don't like him it seems i mean like his like republicans who serve with him in congress republican governors you know he's not that popular in florida even as we speak and you know it's not a short thing to be reelected. so I, but i don't know i mean i i think i think he's definitely a symptom but i think he's a big old symptom <laughs> i mean he's like the symptom he's like pneumonia he's like the thing that like you really feel and can really like be the lethal stroke um yeah you know, i think the the ground was primed i think it was primed by washington's own arrogance and excesses and you know corruption i mean maybe more subtle corruption but corruption nonetheless i mean we've all covered it and um you know trump trump exploited that trump you know Trump, you know, perfected kind of running against Washington, but he had a lot of help. I mean, he the, he had a whole party helping him, basically. He also had a major cable network, you know, the most successful news cable news network helping him. I mean, I don't know if network of uh, Nixon would have like left office if he had as compliant a House leader as um, Kevin McCarthy, if he had Fox News, you know, kind of drowning everything out every night and sort of blockading the information that was coming out um obviously different times um but yeah so i think it's a combination of both i mean he sees the moment you know i i i think he was a disaster for the party i think he will be in the long term but you know they'll probably win the midterms and at least in the house and you know biden's got major problems democrats have major problems and you know get trump into a general election or Well, just I mean, I I assume he's going to run and I assume if he runs, he wins, get him into a general election and it's a jump ball and, you know, go again. So
0: on the question of whether Trump is losing altitude, we are, you know, which we thought he was, or at least I thought he was uh, a month or so ago, um, Danny and I were down in Georgia for the primary in which Brad Raffensberger, you know, won convincingly over a Trump backed opponent, uh, as did Brian Kemp, yeah. uh, the Georgia governor. But as we speak today, uh, the uh, Trump backed candidate in Maryland, a state delegate named Dan uh, Cox, who's full MAGA appears to have won the state's Republican primary with, by the way, the after getting millions of dollars in advertising support from the Democratic Governors yeah. Association. That's something that could could have been right out of this town, I would think. Yeah, but, you know, they do but, it a
3: lot. They've been doing it a lot. I think it's playing with fire. Yeah. I
0: mean, the thinking is,
3: you know, get a, yeah, a Trump
0: candidate lose. and then he'll lose. Mm. It'll be easier for us to win. But
3: yeah, be careful what you wish for. Right. A
0: dangerous game, I would think. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. So I should have covered this in the beginning. But, you know, we all knew you for years, first at the Washington Post, at the New York Times. And Mm -hmm. now you've left the Times and you have this new gig with The Atlantic. Tell us why you left and what the new gig is.
3: Yeah. I mean, basically, I was at the Times for 16 years. Before that, I was at the Post for nine years. I mean, 25 years in you know, newspapers, you know, a lot of magazine work in there, but a lot, it just felt like a lot. It was a long time.
1: You paid your dues. I
3: paid my dues. And I love, I mean, I loved the times. I, I left on perfectly good terms. I, I missed magazine writing, frankly. I thought the, I think the Atlantic's been doing great stuff. And I also, yeah, you know, they want, they're allowing me to sort of branch out into, non-political stuff a little bit i'll be doing mostly politics but you know sports i like I, I like writing about sports and just you know different things and yeah so it's a nice change I, I just really i mean i think truthfully also i thought that with this book coming out which feels a lot more partisan not not partisan but it's just it has much more of a point of view it probably would have been hard to try to kind of um come you know try to reconcile that with the institutional weight um of the times um which you know is always a bit of a challenge when you work there because it's a can be a bit of a heavy place as far as you know not i mean you can imagine but you know again i, I didn't i just thought that it, it it i just needed a change i mean i've been at this a while and um you know so far so good it's only been three months and yeah, the greatest thing is they let me have three months before i started so i, I was like basically january february march i could finish this book and it needed a lot of work i mean i i had long ways to go and um, didn't have a book leave at the time. So um, I took my own book leave and um, I don't know how I got it done, but I probably wrote like six, maybe 220 of the 300 pages in the book I probably wrote in those three months, which I, I have no idea how I did because um, I'm not typically a very fast writer. And, you know, part of it was, you know, pandemic, cold, freezing, you know. Deadlines concentrate the mind. Oh, I'm, I'm, so I, much. So. Deadlines concentrate
0: the minds. Well, anyway, we're glad you got the three months. It's a great read. Thank thanks. you for your servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission by Mark Leibovich. Mark, thanks for joining us.